good to see you today. Hope you're thawing out a little bit. Missed you last week. If you joined us online, um, we replayed the prayer service that we had on the first Sunday of the year, and I hope that was a good thing for you to go through that again. Just as a reminder, it was really good for me just to walk through each of those prayer points again and, and just to refresh on them and, and really, I hope, be committed to praying for those things uh, throughout this whole year together. And as another reminder, the bookmarks are in the worship guide, the bulletin again this week if you want to take those with you and just keep that in your Bible or somewhere where you'll see it each day and that we can continue to pray together as a church for what we've been seeing in the book of Acts, the way that God uh, is working by his spirit to build his church and that we would pray what he's teaching us and ask him to do what we're seeing in the Bible and that we would see that here in our lives and, and in this church. We're going to be in Acts 17 today, and so if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your devices, we'll have it on the screen too. Uh, but before we jump in real quick, two quick things that I want to tell you about. We've had a different start to the year. We had the prayer service, we had the missionary update with Celia, then last week we had the snow and the ice, and so it's been like a while since a normal week. And I wanted to revisit uh, right around Christmas. If you were with us for Christmas Eve uh, or the Sunday after Christmas, we got to have a couple of special family worships where the kids were in with us and we used the Jesus Storybook Bible and studied the Bible with them. Um, and I wanted to say thanks to all the parents and families for letting me study with the kids those two days. I really, really enjoyed those two weeks. If you missed them, if you want to get on the website and listen, our kids pulled out some awesome truths about God those two weeks. I think my all-time favorite was Jesus doesn't care about being all fancy and stuff. Um, that was a, a really good one. But um, what I wanted to say, I had a conversation two weeks ago with one of our parents, and they were talking about bringing kids in here, kids sitting with them, and always being nervous. And I just wanted to say something to you that I hope you know this, but just so that we've said it, your kids are always welcome in here. Always. No, Teresa and our children's and preschool workers do a great job, and I know that I, I know as a parent of an almost nine and seven-year-old, like what a relief it is to send them up there sometimes. And so you're always welcome to send them up there, and if that helps you focus. But anytime that you want to be together as a family, it doesn't just have to be when there's a baptism. We're taking the Lord's supper. Your kids are always welcome in here. Crying babies are welcome in here. Like fidgety. Preschoolers are welcome in here. Talkative elementary age kids are welcome in here. There's nothing that I'm saying or doing that's so important that the kids can't interrupt us a little bit. So just don't ever worry about that at all. And it's not going to be a distraction for us. And I just want to make sure that we know that. Like, they're welcome in here. We want to be together as a family. We love your kids. We love you. We love your family. And so I just want you, like, not just when we have family services. Always, all the time. That's your call. We love them up there. We love them in here. So just so you know that. Now, the other thing... Um, at this point, if you've been around with us for the past eight or nine months, you know that we've partnered with a missionary couple in Peru, Miguel and Faith um, Saxara. Miguel texted me this week, and he was like, can we, can we get, get together on Zoom and study the Bible? I was like, yeah, I've got some time Thursday afternoon. And so he and I uh, were talking. He said, I've been invited to preach at a church on Sunday, and I want to teach them this Bible study method, which is like really a gutsy thing to do. Like you're walking in as the guest speaker. It's like, hey, I'm going to do this in a different way because I think it's really, really worthwhile. And so right now, while we're doing this, in Peru, Miguel's going to be doing this at a church where for the very first time ever, he's teaching them to study the Bible this way. And I just told him, I was like, I'm going to share that with our church. And when we pray to get started, we're going to pray for you. So just so you know, like when you're standing up there to teach, we're going to be praying for you back here in Tennessee. And so when we get started right here in a second, we're going to pray as we always do asking God that he would teach us, 
that he would speak to us by his spirit as only he can, that the spirit would be the one doing the teaching right now, and something of spiritual significance and spiritual power would happen, and that we would be dependent on him to do that. We're going to pray for that, but we're also going to pray that for Miguel as he teaches right now in Peru. And so I just want to let you know that it's exciting the way God's doing that and things that are happening that sometimes we don't see like right in front of us, but that God is working all around the world and making disciples and building his church just the way that he promises in the book of Acts. So I'm going to pray for us if you'll pray with me, and we're going to pray for Miguel as well, and then we'll read Acts 17. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the privilege of studying the Bible together. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness that you speak to us and you keep teaching us and reminding us and revealing to us who you are. And I ask you to do that right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. Father, open the truth of your word up to us and open us up to the truth of your word. Do a spiritual work in our hearts and in our minds so that we will see you and know you and love you more because of who you are and the way you reveal yourself to us during this time. And Father, we pray for Miguel as he teaches right now in Peru. Fill him with your spirit. I pray that you will give him your words to teach, and I pray that you'll be at work in the hearts of everyone in that church, and that they would see you and know you more, and that you would do this work of making disciples who make disciples, who encounter you in your word and know you, and that you would build your church and expand your kingdom, and that it would grow in ways that we could never, ever comprehend, in ways that we don't even see, that we, that we pray for things that are so big, a movement of your spirit and your church and your kingdom, that it's too big for us to comprehend. It's too big for us to know everything that you're doing. And when you give us these little reminders and these little glimpses that you're at work all around the world, far beyond us, we thank you and we praise you that it's not limited to us and it doesn't depend on us. And so we thank you for the partnership with Miguel. We thank you for your work in his life and faith's life and your call on them to make disciples among the nations. And we pray that this morning will be a great encouragement and a time of great spiritual fruit for them in their ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Acts 17. And as I read, listen for this primary question, this foundational question, what's this teach us about God? And we'll take a few minutes for you to share the things that you're hearing, uh, that God shows you in his word. What's this teach about God? And then based on that, what's he saying to us as well this morning? And I'll be honest with you, I really like Acts 17. I've been kind of excited. We, we got delayed, and then we got delayed last week, so I've had two weeks instead of one week, and so I may have a lot of things written down up here, but you get to go first today, and if we have to, we'll just do two weeks in Acts 17 if that's what it comes down to. So Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Paul's on his second missionary journey right here with Silas. Now when they had passed through Amph Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, 
we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right. What stands out to you today? Truths about who God is, his nature, his character, how he works. Mm. God will use you wherever the world drives you. Yeah, Paul's in Thessalonica, and God is using him there to make Jesus known. They'd run him out of Thessalonica, and he doesn't think, well, that's rejection, that's defeat, you know, I can't do what I'm supposed to do now. He ends up in Berea and says, well, that means I'm in Berea to make Jesus known. (laughs) And the Jews from Thessalonica chase him to Berea and run him out of there. And he ends up in Athens. He doesn't think, well, I've gotten shut down twice now. This must not be what's supposed to happen. He ends up in Athens and thinks, well, I'm supposed to make Jesus known here. (laughs) Like wherever he is, that's where God has him for the purpose of making Jesus known. Even in the Great Commission, we don't see it really quite as well in English when it's go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. The, the verb there is make disciples. Like Jesus has given us a command to make disciples. The others, you hear it in baptizing, how it ends in the I-N-G, teaching ends in the I-N-G. Really, go is the same form of speech. In Greek, it ends in an I-N-G. And the way it really sounds, what Jesus, as you're going, wherever you're going, make disciples. Like the command is make disciples as you go. Make disciples wherever you go, wherever you find yourself. This is the rest of your life to be following Jesus and making Jesus known and helping other people follow Jesus. God will use you wherever the world drives you, wherever you find yourself. It's not that you've got to go change your whole life this week to make disciples. It's that you make disciples, right? Like God has you where you are in your work to make disciples there. God has you where you are in your school to make disciples there. God has you where you are in your neighborhood to make disciples there. God has you where you are coaching your kids' teams to make disciples there. Wherever you are, what else stands out to you? Truths about God. <laughs> God can turn the world upside down. Here's the, the verse here. The accusation that comes against them. These men who have turned the world upside down, declaring this other king, Jesus, through faithful followers and unfaithful followers, because what stands out to me is this is right on the heels of Paul and uh, Barnabas splitting there at the end of Acts 15, not getting it right in their relationship with one another. And now here God is sending Paul on this missionary trip and Barnabas is in a different direction on that missionary trip that God in his faithfulness uses his followers even when we mess up. Yes, when we're faithful. No, when we're not. That this depends ultimately on him, but that he does something bigger than we could ever do whether in our faithfulness or not. That he's turning the world upside down through his people. What else stands out to you? Say that again. God sets the path for 
Like for us, is that what you said? Sorry, I wasn't hearing clearly. Yeah. God sets the path for us. Yeah, and we, we were picking up on this, you know, a chapter earlier in chapter 16 where Paul kept going places and thinking, okay, this is where I'm going to go next, and then God redirected. And we saw in one section there early in chapter 16 that God redirected him four times before he finally got to where God intended him to be in Philippi, uh, which was the rest of chapter 16. And then we see here again that, and notice the way that God does it sometimes. It is the difficulty and the hardship and the rejection in Thessalonica that drives him to Berea. And then it's the people from Thessalonica coming to Berea and creating more difficulty and hardship and rejection and driving him to Athens. But each time, we know that there's a sovereign God who has made a promise from the very beginning of Acts, Jesus saying that you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that all these things that are happening, even when they look like they're in opposition to Jesus building his church, Jesus uses that very opposition to keep driving Paul and this missionary team and driving the gospel itself for the very first time to the ends of the earth. That this is God using all of that to keep his promises and to set the path where he's wanting the gospel to travel to reach places where it had ever reached before. To see God in control like this, to know that God knows these details when we don't. God knows what's happening, what's coming next, where he wants us to be. It gives us a confidence, first of all, to say, okay, God's in control. I can live faithfully right here. I can trust him with where he has me. And it also gives us a freedom to say, this doesn't, like, it doesn't depend on Paul making sure that every single person in Thessalonica responds the way that we would want them to. Right? He doesn't say, well, they rejected it, so that's a failure. He says, no, this is, this is part of God's, God's brought me to Berea now, and I'm going to speak about Jesus here. God's brought me to Athens now, and I'm going to speak about Jesus here. And it, as far as I can tell, it never crosses his mind to think, well, you know what, they didn't respond real well. Maybe I should do something different next time. <laughs> it's not even an option. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a few minutes. What else stands out to you? Truths about God. That's awesome. God made everything. He doesn't live in the stuff we build. He's not served by us because he doesn't need anything from us because he has and gives everything. God doesn't need... You just said, That's how you said it. Well, God doesn't need anything from us. What else stands out to you? We are his children. We are God's children. Flip that around also. God is our Father. Every good thing that you would believe about a father. Like if you think this is who a father should be. The, the good experiences I have had or seen with a father, all those good things make them perfect, and that's who God is in his relationship to us. What else stands out to you? A couple more truths about God. Yeah. What humans intend for evil, God uses good. You know, we hear that initially back in Genesis um, after Joseph's brothers want to kill him. 
have a little bit of a crisis of, crisis of conscience, and so they sell him into slavery. And then from slavery, he gets falsely accused and convicted and thrown in prison for several years. And as an end result of all that, though, when God sends dreams to Pharaoh in Egypt about a famine that come, is coming, Joseph is there to interpret those dreams and gets exalted to the highest place of power in Egypt, right underneath of Pharaoh, so that God is able to save not just Egypt, but Joseph's entire family, the promises that God had made to them during that time of famine. And when Joseph's brothers come and realize the power Joseph has and the ability that he has now to pay them back for what they've done to him, his response is, don't be afraid. He, he forgives them because he says, I, I know what you did. But underneath that and around that and through that, God was doing something bigger. He was redeeming the evil that you intended and bringing good out of it. The saving of many lives is how he says it. And so we see that initially with Joseph. We see that here, that these Jews in Thessalonica, their intention is to shut Paul up, to stop Paul, to intimidate Paul, to drive Paul out of their city so that Jesus won't be made known. They accomplish that. They drive him out of the city. The result is that Jesus is made known in another city. And they drive him out of that city, and the results that Jesus is made known in another city. They intend it for evil, and God, God's like, hey, this is what I've told them to do, to go to the ends of the earth. Like I, I want my gospel to reach every city on earth, and you're just helping me do that. And so, yeah, what, what humans intend for evil, God uses for good. The ultimate example, obviously, being the cross. That wicked men misuse their power, religious leaders, political leaders, the crowd, every, every layer of society turns on Jesus when he has done nothing wrong and in the most evil and sinful and wicked act in the history of the world, they crucify Jesus like a criminal. And God uses the worst thing that's ever been done in the history of the world to accomplish the greatest good that's ever been known in the history of the world. Like he takes it and he redeems it and he turns it into something better than it ever could have been otherwise. Like this is who God is. This is the story of the gospel. This is the power of the grace of God that he steps down into the worst moments. He steps down into evil and sin and wickedness and he takes it on himself and then in his goodness he transforms it and he brings the greatest good out of that. That nothing's a lost cause. Nothing's too far gone. Nothing's ever the end of the story when this is what God can do. Right? However dark or bad, it can really be that dark. It can really be that bad. It can really be that ugly. But when you can transform stuff like this, when you have the power to redeem and to turn evil itself into your greatest good, nothing can stop you. This is why God's building this church. This is why he won't be stopped. This is why we can trust him. This is why we can have confidence and joy even in the darkest and hardest moment of your life. Like when you feel like, this is the worst thing I've ever known. This is the worst thing I've been through. I don't see anything but darkness and despair right now. All of that can be true. And you can say, this is the very thing God redeems. This is the very thing that God transforms. This is the, this right here. This is the place that sets the stage for God to do this work and bring great good out of horrible things. When we say that God brings great good out of horrible things, do you know what has to be there first? The horrible things. Right? There has to be the moment where it's like all, all, it feels like all is lost. And when it feels like all is lost, this is when the grace of God comes in and changes everything. 
That's the hope that we have in Jesus. One more. What stands out to you? One more truth about God. We say opposition as a stumbling block, and God says, if you allow me, I'll make it a That's a great way to say that. We see opposition as a stumbling, as a stumbling block. If we trust God, trust God, He uses it as a building block. I mean, that is redemption. That is taking what was intended for evil and using it for good. It's also in Romans 8 when Paul uses that phrase that we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, if, if he said that we're conquerors, what that would be is, okay, these people opposed Paul and Paul overcame them. Like that God helped him overcome them. That there was this, you know, in a sense, this battle between the Jews and Paul and Paul won. And that'd be the end of the story. That's conquerors. But more than conquerors isn't just that you win. You've got to do something more than just winning the battle. And what it is is, okay, they oppose Paul. And not just does God win, does God keep accomplishing his purpose, but God actually uses their opposition as one of the tools that helps him advance his purposes through Paul. That the very opposition itself becomes a source, a tool of even greater victory. And so it's not just, yeah, Paul wins in Thessalonica. It's Paul wins in Thessalonica because there are people that believe in Thessalonica and as a result of their opposition in Berea and in Athens. Right? That, that's more than conquerors. It, it is. With, it's not just that, that God preserves Joseph through all the bad things that his brothers do and he survives it and he wins. Like they don't defeat him. It's that he uses the very thing that his brothers did to him to create an even greater good than would have happened if they hadn't done those evil things. That's more than conquerors. That that those dark moments, those things that you go through, he doesn't just bring you through them. He, does, he brings you through them, but not just through them. That you're better than you would have been if you hadn't gone through them. You're stronger than you would have been. That he uses them to, to dig down into your soul and create a deeper capacity within you. A capacity to receive more grace from him. A capacity to trust him more. Then That if you didn't go through that, there'd be a shallowness, a, a superficial nature to your spirituality, that there would be a depth that's lacking. And yeah, he could fill you up with as much grace, as much love, as much truth as you can hold, but here's what you can hold. And then this terrible thing comes along, and it digs you out. Like it, it, There's this pit that you're in, and it's a deep, dark, black hole. But because of that now, there's the capacity, not for this much grace and this much truth and this much knowledge of God, but for this much and when he fills you up on the other side, when he keeps pouring his grace into you, when you know him more than you would have known him if you hadn't gone through that dark night, then it's not just, it's not just the I got through the dark night. It's I'm better for having gone through it. God has made me more than a conqueror. I survived it, but I survived it as someone who's even better and stronger and knows God more and trusts God more, that God has produced things in me that couldn't have come otherwise. I like that. It could be a stumbling block. In God's hands, he uses it as a building block. If these things are true about God, let's just re reread them real quickly. What's God saying to you this morning? A couple points of application, and then I'll share some thoughts with you as we wrap up. God will use you wherever the world drives you. 
God can turn the world upside down through faithful followers and also unfaithful followers. God sets the path for us. God doesn't need anything from us. We are God's children. God is our Father. What humans intend for evil, God uses for good. We see opposition as a stumbling block. If we trust God, he uses it as a building block. Do you want to share a couple of things that God's saying to your heart right now? Just the ways he's speaking to you in your life or us as a church. What? Thirty and thirty-one. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day in which He would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has been given assurance to all. He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. I think what's going on in those two verses, if I if I anticipate what your question is, is something similar to what Paul writes about in Romans 3. Um, and I don't have this on the screen, if you'll just listen or if you want to turn there. In Romans 3, Paul talks about God sending Jesus as a, a sacrifice of atonement, you know, to cover for our sins, to pay the price for our sins. And I'm going to pick up in verse 25. Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And then if you aren't turned there right now, like if you're just sitting there and you think about the usual church category, and listen, this, this is a correct category. I'm not saying it's wrong, okay? But think about the usual church category. When we say God sent Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement you know, to pay for our sins through faith in his blood, we would describe that as an expression of God's what? Fill in the blank for me. God's what to us? What word? He did this to demonstrate his love. Love Love's one that, that you hear a lot there. There's another word I was thinking of. Mercy. Grace. Grace is the one I was thinking of, but all three are two. Right? Like the, and so, yeah, I think if we were going to fill in the blank, God sent Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. He did this to demonstrate his love. Right? For God so loved the world. That's that, absolutely true. God did this to demonstrate his mercy, that he's not punishing us the way we deserve to punish. God did this to demonstrate his grace, that he's given us a gift that we don't deserve. All those are perfectly true. But Paul says something different in Romans 3. And it's not one that I don't, I don't think it ever pops in anybody's mind at the top of the list. So, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. That somehow, God having Jesus as a sacrifice on the cross was showing God's justice. And then he goes on, he explains, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, which is the exact same thought, this is why Acts 17 reminded me of it, that he's saying that there's a sense in which God overlooked a whole lot of sin before Jesus came. And what he means by that, God did not punish it to the extent that it deserved. Now, he told Adam and Eve at the very beginning, you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. Like, sin means that the, the, the wages of sin, the, the wages that sin earns for you, your payment that you should get for your sin is death. And the deal is, nobody, when they sin, they die immediately, right? 
There, there's, there's mercy and there's patience for all of us. Over and over and over, Romans 2 talks about God's kindness and patience that should bring you to repentance. And so then Paul goes on here. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, to show that he really is just and righteous and that he makes the right judgment about all things and he treats them the right way and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So he'll both be just and say the right thing about your sin and treat it the right way, but he'll also be gracious and he'll make you righteous through faith in Jesus when you really don't deserve to be righteous. That that God will be both. But the idea here is that if God were to ignore sin permanently, like always, just like, it's okay, just come on in, it's no big deal, you were sincere, you tried your best, you did a pretty good job, we'll just ignore all the bad stuff that God would be unjust. What he would, say, what he would be saying about your sin wouldn't be true. And if God is untrue, he's not God. That in his very nature, he can't treat your sin as less than it is. And what your sin is, what my sin is, at its core, is a rejection of God himself. Rebellion against God. It is a way of us saying, I don't need you, I'm going to do my own thing. Leave me alone. I don't care what you say. I don't want to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. It's rebellion against God, rejection against God. It's an undermining, a devaluing of God's glory. That, that what God deserves because of who he is is a response from our hearts that says you are greatest and you are most valuable and you are worthy of all worship and glory and honor and obedience forever and ever. That's what he deserves. And to give him anything less than that is to fall infinitely short of who he is. And the just response to this infinite debt that you owe him, like, that you should have given him that type of worship. You should have given him that type of trust. You should have given him that type of love. You should have given him that type of obedience. And you haven't. You have not. And if he is honest, if he is true, if he is a just and righteous judge, he will look at you and he will say, you are infinitely short. You owe me an infinite debt. You can die and it won't be enough. You can die forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever in hell. That's the only way. Infinite punishment because you're infinitely short of my infinite glory. And he hasn't done that to people. Right? Adam and Eve, he doesn't do that to them. Yeah, he kicks them out of the garden, but he makes them a promise. I'm going to send somebody who's going to undo the mess that you've made. And he sacrifices an animal and he covers them. He provides covering for them in their shame. Noah. Noah doesn't get picked because he's perfect. We know it because he gets off the ark. And listen, after you've been on that ark with all those animals and your in-laws for a year, you would probably get drunk too, but that's what Noah does. Right? Don't think that Noah got picked because he was perfect. And just go down to Abraham. Listen, you read Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, and you tell me how many times Abraham blows it. Moses? Moses murders a guy and runs off and hides for 40 years, and God comes and finds him and is like, I'm going to give you a second chance. And Moses says, I don't want it. Leave me alone. And God uses him anyway. Right? Like these are the real stories. David, after David is, you know, he's got these 30 mighty men in his, like his best warriors who do everything for him. One of them's a guy named Uriah, one of his 30 closest warriors. Uriah's off fighting a war in David's name for David's kingdom. And while Uriah's gone, David's unfaithful with Uriah's wife. Huge sin, number one. 
But then, to cover it up, he murders Uriah. And then, never, never confesses, never admits, till God sends a prophet to him to confront him with his sin. And you think about God not killing him on the spot. God not casting David into hell for those sins. Like, if we're really being honest, we have to look and say, is God just? Like, when Nathan looks at David and says, don't worry, the Lord's taking your sin away. That's what he says to him. Like, Nathan confronts David with his sin, the adultery and the murder, and David says, I've sinned against the Lord, I'm going to die. And he says, don't worry, the Lord's taking away your sin. We love to hear that when we read it in terms of grace, but I want you to think for a minute about justice. If you were Uriah's mom or dad, and David murders your son, and God says, I'm taking that sin away, how do you feel? Do you want justice then? Do you feel like God's being unjust? That's what Paul's dealing with here. Like, What do we do with all these sins that don't seem to have been punished the way they deserve? And he said, the answer is Jesus. That's what we do with them. Because when Jesus came and died on the cross, God took the sins of David and the sins of Abraham and the sins of Moses and the sins of Noah and the sins of Adam and Eve and the sins of everyone who will ever believe in Jesus. And he put them on Jesus. And then he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. Everything that your sin deserves to get from God, God gave to Jesus instead. And God says, see, I am just. I know what sin deserves, I declare it, and I do it rightly. But in the very same moment that he's just, he says, I'm also gracious and merciful and loving because the sinners that deserve this punishment, I'll take it off of you and I'll put it on my own son. I'll pay the price for you so that you don't have to pay it for yourself. I'll pay the price so it's really paid and justice is really satisfied and you see that I'm a holy and righteous God. And I'll pay it for you so that you know that I love you and I'm merciful and I'm gracious. And yeah, this debt that you can never ever pay, I can and I will for you. I think that's what he's talking about there in Acts 17. It's what he's talking about here in Romans 3 that that God has not responded in the type of immediate and instantaneous wrath where he just cuts us all down and destroys the whole creation the way that we deserve. And it's like, why is he tarried? Why is he lingered? Because in patience, he's been writing this story throughout all of history where we would understand his grace and his promise of restoration, his promise of redemption. And in Jesus, all of that comes to a head. Like Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And so Paul's saying, and now, like now, he's told you the whole story. Jesus has come. He has shown his righteousness and his grace. And now is the time for you to repent, to turn to Jesus in faith. That's what he's declaring to those Athenians there who are worshiping all these gods they don't even know. And Paul's like, let me tell you about a God you can know. A God who's not gold and silver and stone. A God who came down into creation and revealed himself through his son so that you can actually know him. Let me tell you what he's like and you trust him. He is the real God. He's the God who made all things. I think that's what's going on in verses 30 and 31 there. What else? Points of application, and then I've got a few more things I want to add. Yeah. I do like this. Like, they've shipped Paul off, by the way. Like, we're, just, we're trying to keep you safe, 
and we're just going to let you, you're, you're, like, this is like he's just checked into an Airbnb for a few days in Athens, and then they're going to hop on a ship and go somewhere else. But he can't even do that. Like, Paul can't turn it off for two or three days. He walks in, and he sees all these idols, and he sees these idols getting the glory that God deserves. He sees these people who are trusting something that's not Jesus, and so Jesus isn't being trusted the way that Jesus should be trusted, and Paul just can't handle it. And it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so what he does, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace every day, synagogue and marketplace. Like He goes to the places of religion, and he's like, hey, all you religious people, let me tell you about Jesus. And then he goes out into the world, the marketplace. Hey, all you irreligious pagans, let me tell you about Jesus. Like, this is what his spirit is provoked to do. And so, yeah, like, when God prompts you, when God provokes your spirit in you, speak, follow, obey, do what he tells you to do. Um, And even more than that, like, and this is part of the application we'll get to in a minute, I, I want us to have the type of heart that loves Jesus and is passionate enough about his gospel that when we hear people, religious people and irreligious people, not believing that gospel, we're like, I can't be quiet about that. We've just got to keep telling them the truth. We have to keep telling them who Jesus is. We have to keep telling them what the real gospel is. What else stands out to you? One more thing and then I'll, I'll go. Anything else God's saying to you right now? Mm. That's awesome. We don't have to protect ourselves when we know that we have a God who can redeem these things and bring good out of it. Like it's, and, and what we're saying there is like you don't have to live in fear all the time of, I've got to take care of me, and I've got to look out for me, and I've got to watch out for this and this. You've got someone so much better than you, so much wiser than you, so much more powerful than you, so much more loving than you, who said he's going to take care of you. And that the worst thing that comes into your life is not too much for him. It's not too big for him. He can do a better job of taking care of you than you can. He can do a better job of protecting you than you can. And he can do a better job of redeeming the worst things in your life than you ever dreamed about. And it sets you free from thinking about self. It sets you free from self-protection. You, you can just let go of self because you believe, you trust his love for you and his care for you and his power to redeem. And what it does is for the very first time it sets you free to love. Because thinking about self is not love. And when he sets you free from self, you can love him, you can trust him, and you can love other people. You can risk, and you can take chances, and you can forgive, and you can extend grace, and you can go to people who are hard and difficult and far from God because you're not worried about you and you're not looking out for you. God has set you free because of the way that God can care for you. The other thing I was thinking about as you were saying it, by the way, like when we know that God takes bad and redeems it and brings good out of it and brings even greater good out of it, is that you also you don't have to protect yourself. You also have to beat yourself up. You don't have to spend the rest of your life in guilt and shame and regret over, I blew that. I did this wrong. I'm like, this was, God gave me this, and I absolutely, totally blew it. Yeah, I've done it. 
I'm betting you've done it. Everybody we just talked about in the whole story of the Bible has done it. And what does God do when you do that? You really did. We're not minimizing that. Guess what? That's not the end of the story. If he can take everybody else's evil and bring good out of it, he can do that with yours too. So yeah, you've got parts of your story where you've blown it, you've messed up, you've sinned, you've gotten it wrong. God takes those broken pieces and he brings greater good out of them than ever could have happened if they hadn't been broken in your life. So you don't have to protect yourself and you don't have to beat yourself up. You bring the mess that other people create in your life. When they hurt you, you bring that hurt to God and you say, God, please, please redeem this. I trust you with it. And the mess that you create in your life, when you hurt yourself and you hurt other people, you bring that to God and you say, God, please redeem this. Bring good out of this. And you don't always see every piece like that. But we keep trusting him. We say, you've told this story so many times. You've told it over and over and over. That when I am in the dark, I'll keep believing what I know is true about you. I want to see it. And I'm going to ask you, like, let me see it. And let me see it soon, quickly. Make haste. But I'm going to trust you while I don't see it. And I'm going to trust you when I do see it. That's really good. That, that the redemption of God, the redeeming power and love and grace of God sets us free from self-protection and self-blame, from guilt and shame, from fear and worry and anxiety. The more you believe that this is who God is, the more freedom and joy you're going to have in following him and trusting him and seeing his work in your life and seeing him do things that are better than could have ever happened otherwise. I'm going to run through a few of these really quickly. Some of them are just restating what we've already said this morning, but most of it just really jumped out to me at the beginning of the sermon that Paul preaches. Um... And just to set a little quick context real quick here, I've gotten to go to Athens once, and Keith and I were talking a week ago, and he's been to Athens once, and I've been to this actual place, the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and I got to stand on Mars Hill, and one of the coolest things about it, just so you, like if you can, if you're like a picture of this mentally, when Paul is standing on Mars Hill, up above him is the Parthenon, which is the temple that they had built like to all the Greek gods, and then over to the side of that is the temple to Athena, who's like the head female god in Greece. And then down below him, you're looking down on the temple of Zeus, who's the, the head male god in Greek mythology. And so I just love the fact that Paul is standing in the middle of all these temples, like their most holy, respected places. And he stands in the middle of all of them. And he says, hey, I noticed that, that you've got an altar to an unknown God. There's a God you don't know. Let me tell you who that God is. He's the God who made everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he, like this God I'm going to tell you about, he doesn't live in your temples. <laughs> the best things you've ever built, <laughs> he doesn't need it. Your, your paltry little gods that you built these temples for and you tried to make them big and impressive and, and awe-inspiring, this God, he's way bigger than that. <laughs> that. That's what he's saying right here. So here's some of the things that just stood out to me, truths about God. And, and again, we've said some of these. God doesn't live in what we build. There's nothing you're ever going to do for God that is big enough for God. It's not the type of God he is, and that's not who you are. Hey, God, I'm going to build this for you, and you'll be impressed. It's not who he is. He's way too big for that. Even in the Old Testament, you know, when God has them build the temple, 
He has them build a temple in the Old Testament so that, his, that they can visibly see his presence come and dwell with them. Go and read, if you want to, this week. When Solomon builds that temple, the prayer he prays immediately after, he says, hey, I know that this temple's not big enough for you. He says, I know that all of heaven and earth isn't big enough for you. It's the very prayer he prays in the Old They already knew this about the true God. But they knew that, it was, that that temple wasn't their gift to God so that he could come live in it. That temple was God's grace to them that he would come and dwell among them. That it was something God was doing for them, not something they were doing for God. And Solomon knows, he says, this is, like, there's no way you would ever come and live in this. All of earth, all of heaven, not big enough for you. If you want to read his prayer, it would be a good thing to look at. So, doesn't live in temples made by man. God is not served by us, right? Nor is he served by human hands. Because if he were, you're implying something about God. God needs something from you and you can give it to him, right? That you have something that God lacks and you're going to offer it to him now. And that's not who God is and that's not who you are. God lacks nothing God has everything. God made everything. Anything that you would offer to God is something that God made. Like, why do you have it? Because God gave it to you. <laughs> it's true that we give things to God. Everything we give to God is the stuff that God gave to us that was already God's. It's why every time if you walk through these letters that Paul writes in the New Testament and he sees these people who are serving God, like who are trusting him and giving their lives to him, he says, I thank God for your service, your acts of love, your faith. He thanks God, not them. He didn't, say, he didn't say thank you for what you gave to God. He said, I thank God for what he did in you so that you would offer this to God. God is not served by us. God doesn't need anything from us because God has no needs. And so, if that's not who God is, right? he doesn't live in what we build, he's not served by us, he doesn't need anything from us, who is he? He himself gives. Just, just those two words. That's who he is. God gives. He's so full in himself that he overflows. He overflows in the act of creation and then he overflows in giving to his creation. Like if you want to know who God is, you just reflect on that. God gives. He gives life and breath and everything else. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. He gives love and he gives grace and he gives mercy and he gives redemption and he gives restoration and he gives second chances. He gives a family and a home and he gives you a name that he alone knows. He gives intimacy and he gives relationship. He gives his own son. God gives. You're called to trust a God who gives. A God who pours out. A God who overflows to you. A God who has everything and needs nothing and therefore doesn't have to hold tightly for himself. He says, generosity and abundance abounding to you. Like the essence of your relationship with God is not God standing up here, shaking his finger at you and saying, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to bring me? What are you going to give to me? It's not the core of who he is. It's a God who looks at you and says, 
I made you, and I love you, and I have everything for you. Will you trust me? Will you stop trusting yourself and the whole bunch of nothing that you have? Will you let go of your nothing and come to me and let me fill it up with everything? Will you let go of your self-protection and your self-effort and your self-righteousness and let me pour into you my love and my grace and my fullness? God gives, and then Paul goes on to expand on that, God gives us everything we have, just in case you're going to limit that in some way. Right? Gives to all mankind, so if you're part of the human race, this applies to you, and he gives you life and breath and everything. You exist you keep existing, and everything you have while you exist is because of Him. God made all the nations, right? From one man, every nation on earth, He made them. That's why this great commission that Jesus has given us is to make disciples of all nations, because they're all God. They all belong to him in the beginning and he intends to redeem all of them and claim them back for himself. This is why, this is why we partner with missionaries. Missionaries who go to the Middle East, like you heard from Celia a couple weeks ago. Missionaries in South America. Missionaries wherever else that God, God calls us to go or us to partner with in the next few years. That this is the story that God is telling us throughout all of human history and throughout the Bible and who he's calling his church to be. He's saying, they're all mine and I want them all. And the gospel's for all of them. God determined our exact time and place. I know I'm sloppy. I'm writing fast. Right? He's determined periods and boundaries. Like the fact that you would live now and not 100 years before or 100 years later is because of God. And the fact that you would be here this morning that you would be in this state, in this city, is because of like, that God had a purpose for it. And what's that purpose? That they should seek God, feel their way toward Him, find Him. God determined our exact time and place so that we might know Him. This is the purpose of your entire life, where you live, when you live, is that you would know God. And I do want to take one quick application right here. If God intends for your whole life, like everything he's planned in your whole life is so that you will know him, that's why I feel really adamant about coming in here week after week and saying, when we study the Bible at this time, it should be so that we will know God. Your whole life is meant for that. Wherever you are, whenever it is, that's what God intends to happen. Certainly, when we come together to study the Bible, it's so that we would know him. This is why we ask that question, what does this teach us about God? If we come together and we study the Bible and we learn a thousand interesting facts about biblical history and we learn 40 good things for you to do to be a better parent, a better dad, a better mom, a better husband, a better wife, a better boss, a better employee, just to, to live a better life, to live your best life now, whatever, like 50 good truths like that, and you don't know more of who God is, you miss the purpose of Bible study and you miss the purpose of your whole life according to this verse, that God created you to know him. Everything that he calls you to do so that you'll know him. Every, every relationship in your life is to drive you to him. Everywhere he places you, every moment, every location is so that you just might, so those hard moments we're talking about, the hardest moments, the darkest moments, so that you might turn to him in that moment. You might seek him in that moment. 
the good moments, the great moments, the joyful moments, is so that you would know there's a good God who gives good gifts and you would thank Him and praise Him, that you would know Him to be sufficient in the darkest moment of your life and you would know Him to be good and wonderful in the greatest moment of your life. That you would know Him. I had written this out. We already spent a lot of time on this, so I'm not going to... God is patient with our ignorance and idolatry. We turn from him. We deny the knowledge of him. We give his glory to other things. We insult him. And he comes back again and again and again and calls us back to himself. And he keeps saying, those aren't real. They can't satisfy you. They're not enough. I'll keep showing you. Will you come back to me? A patient and kind God who calls us to repentance, calls us to turn away from all the things that aren't him and turn back to him over and over. He does command repentance. Like If knowing God is the goal, if a relationship with God is the goal, like to, to be with God, that he created us to be in relationship with him, we've turned away, and he keeps calling, in grace and mercy and love, he keeps calling out to us, calling us back to him, that he wants to give that relationship back to us. He wants to restore us in Jesus. The only way you can come back to God is to come back to God. This isn't a condition where he's like, if you'll do this, you can have me. He's saying, I'm here. You can have me. Come back to me. That's what repentance is. It is coming back to God. It's not something you do for God. It's something that God lets you do to know Him. He's saying, I'll give myself to you. Just come back. Turn away from all the things that aren't me. Turn away from all of your self-reliance and self-protection and independence and come back to me in faith. Admit that none of that's me and that you've been foolish and sinful to love that stuff instead of me. And come back to me. He's commanding this to you for your good because He loves you to give himself to you. God will judge the world. Sorry, I didn't scroll down here. Here's God's patience with our ignorance and idolatry. Here's the command to repent. And then he's going to judge the world by a very certain man, a man that he raised from the dead. God will judge the world By Jesus. That this idea of, is God just? Is God righteous? Is he going to treat sin the way it deserves? Yes. He has made a way for your sin to be taken off of you and put on someone else. He will accept a substitute in your place and justice will be satisfied. He's made a way for your price to be paid, your punishment to be taken. And it doesn't have to be on you. It can be someone else paying it for you, taking it for you. He has made a way, but it only happens through faith in Jesus that you have to be connected to Jesus by faith. If you are outside of Jesus, not under the covering of Jesus, then the day is coming when God's going to say, I'm going to show my justice in response to this sin as well. Every sin that was placed on Jesus, for everyone who believed in Jesus, I showed my just response to their sin when I punished it on the cross. For those of you that aren't in Jesus, it's an infinite price and it will last forever and it will be separation from me forever. Like Either way, he will respond the way that it deserves. He has offered grace, and his grace will forever be seen for everyone who's in Jesus. But for those who reject that grace, justice will still be served. God will judge the world by Jesus. And then the last one. God raised Jesus from the dead. 
and this changes everything. The darkest moment in the history of the world, the worst thing that ever happened, turns into the greatest moment of redemption and celebration and joy that the world has ever known. This is the theme that God keeps shouting. Yeah, death. Yes, there's death. And it's awful and it's hard and you cry out in agony. And then resurrection. And resurrection is greater than it ever could have been if there hadn't been a death. Right? Like, which one's the better story? Oh, yeah, he lived forever. I mean, that's a really good story. Or, no, he died and then came back to life. He defeated death. He went through death and death couldn't hold him and death couldn't keep him. Better than it could have been otherwise. The resurrection is so glorious because the death was so awful. Like this is that theme we've been talking about all morning. So if these things are true about God, here's the last thing that stood out to me as application for us this morning. Back up here at verse 7. We hit on these and I'm going to go fast. If this is who God is, and this is what God has done in Jesus, and this is how unique Jesus is, I want us, I pray for us, to be the type of people, application, who speak so highly of Jesus that we are guilty of allegiance to only Jesus as our king. Like, here's what they, they take them to court and their charge against them is, they're saying there's another king, Jesus. <laughs> <You're> like, yes, <laughs> you heard us. <laughs> That's exactly what we're saying. That's how great he is. That's who he is. That is what we believe. Yeah, we are guilty of that. Like, do you talk about him this way? Do Every time that you get in a conversation with someone in the world or in the church, is Jesus somehow the answer? So much that somebody, here's another way to say, I would love for somebody to be able to say about you, every time I talk to him, his answer is Jesus. Good. <laughs> be guilty of that. Trust Jesus that much. Speak that highly of Jesus. Value Jesus. Let that be true of you. And then men who have turned the world upside down, be so bold with Jesus' gospel that you're guilty. I'm going to say upsetting. I mean turning upside down. Upsetting your entire world. Like, they've done this everywhere they've gone, everywhere they are, everybody they talk to. This is it's always this. They're always turning everything upside down in the name of Jesus. Let that be you. Every religious group you're in, every Bible study, every small group that you're in, Jesus, 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 to the point that religious people are like, I don't know if I believe that Jesus is that much the answer. That's what happens with these religious people that they're encountering, right? And when you're out in the world, it's Jesus, 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 to people who are mocking you, saying, who's this Jesus in resurrection in Athens? Who are these two gods, Jesus and the resurrection? It is always, whatever, it, there's not an area of your life, I pray that there would not be one area of your life you could point to and be like, yeah, I don't really turn that upside down with the name of Jesus. Yeah, at work, mm, no Jesus there. Or at school, no Jesus there. Or, you know, on, on 
on my basketball team, there's some other people that, that believe in Jesus, so we talk about Jesus. But, but on my baseball team, there's not, so n- no Jesus there. No. That you would be so bold with Jesus and his gospel that you're guilty of turning your entire world upside down. And then the very last thing as we close, I'm not going to scroll, so I'll just say it a little bit more quickly. And we've talked about it some. Think about this. When Paul goes to the Jewish synagogues, he starts in their Old Testament. These are religious people who know the Bible, who gather every Saturday and hear the Bible read. And he starts in the Old Testament with them. He's like, Jesus is that Christ. The Messiah that you want, the Messiah that you believe that's coming, the Messiah who's been promised, it is Jesus. So he encounters religious people who know the Bible, and he tells them, you need to know Jesus. And then when he's in the marketplace in Athens, out in the world with pagans who worship idols, he's like, this is who the real God is, and let me tell you, he's raised Jesus from the dead. When it's religious people who know the Bible, Paul's like, you need to know Jesus. And when it's pagans who don't know the Bible at all, he's like, you need to know Jesus. This will be our only message. And then, when, when the Thessalonians reject him and run him out of town, I said this earlier, but he doesn't say, you know what? Maybe that Jesus message didn't go as well as I thought. Maybe we, maybe we should try something different next time. There is nothing else. There's no other option. There's no other name. It's, okay, yeah, they rejected. When they reject me, you know what the response is? I'll go talk about Jesus. And then the Bereans, they respond differently. It says they examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They receive, so they receive what he's saying. They believe. You know what his message to them is? Jesus is the Messiah. He goes to Athens. A bunch of people mock him. What's his message? Jesus. A few people believe. What's his message? Jesus. If they reject you, it's Jesus. And if they mock you, it's Jesus. If they believe you, it's Jesus. If they receive what you say, it's Jesus. There is no negotiation about this. And that little section right there in Berea where it says they examine the scriptures every day to see what Paul says is true, I want you to know this is why we've been trying this experiment the last eight months. And I know, I thank you, you've been patient with me. Like I know teaching this way is different. But the goal is, like listen, if Paul, right, Paul comes and says something to these people in Berea, and it's not enough for him just to say it. They don't just say, well, Paul said it, so it must be true. Hey, Paul, will you come back next week and give me another little nugget of truth? Will you teach me every week? Will you feed me every week? And that'll be my spiritual growth? It says, no, they had more noble character than that, that the Spirit was at work in them, producing something in them, and the result was that they went and studied the Scripture on their own to make sure that what Paul said was true. That's why we're doing this every week, that it would be in your hands to say, this Bible, this word, God has given it to you, to all of us. His spirit, he's given it to you. And when we see spiritual growth, part of what it looks like is you taking ownership of that, you feeding yourself, that every word that comes out of my mouth, especially when I'm talking this fast to the end and cramming a thousand things, I'm going to say stuff wrong sometimes, or I'm not going to say it as clearly as I should. There's going to be questions about it. The biggest thing for that to do is to drive you back to the word in prayer and in the spirit. And for you to say, I'm going to examine every day. Yeah, we'll, we'll gather here once a week and we'll study together and we'll pray together and we'll worship together. But every day I'm going to examine and see, is this what the Bible says? God, will you speak to me yourself? Will you show me yourself? That not just that I'd come and get fed, but I'll learn to feed myself and I'll go and feed others. And I hope you see that right there in that section with Berea today. That the people who are res- really responding to the gospel and responding to the message of Jesus are people who are growing in their ownership of their own faith and their own study of the word. And they're not, they're not even just saying, hey, Paul, feed me. They're saying, Paul, I'm going to make sure everything you say lines up with this because this is the authority in my life. 
I want us to be that type of church. Don't believe anything because I say it. If I can't show you in this, don't believe it. And if you've got a question when you leave, keep looking to this. And, and we, can talk, we can talk and talk and talk. We can both go back to the Bible over and over. And that's what Paul, when he's reasoning from the Scriptures, he's showing them over and over. And this is what it says about Jesus. This is who the Messiah is. We can do that all day long. But this is the authority every day. Because there's nobody else like Jesus. There is no one else like Jesus. God has raised him from the dead and exalted him to the place where he will judge all people for all time, either in grace for those who believe in him or in righteous punishment for those who don't. There's no one like Jesus, and this is his church, and we are his people. And I pray this morning you see him just a little bit more, that you trust him a little bit more, that this week you will love him and follow him and, and that you will let go of your life and live in the freedom and joy that comes from knowing him. And so we're going to sing another song of worship as the worship team comes up. I'm going to pray for us right now, and I pray that you will respond in worship to Jesus because of who he is. So let's pray together. Father, I feel right now that I said a whole lot of words right here at the end, and I pray they're true about you. I think that they are. But God, my words don't have any power at all. Not for the things that matter, and your words do. So Father, will your spirit drive the truth of these words into our hearts? Keep changing us as your people. Keep stirring up faith inside of us. Keep building your church. I pray that we will love and trust and follow Jesus because of who he is, and we will see you work in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.